Hi, welcome to another episode of Eureka Nerd. I'm Will, I've seen my shadow, so that's six more weeks of winter. And I'm Leah, awakened from hibernation much too early. Yes, we are doing what we can to get through winter, so we're going to do what we can to get you through winter too, with a hot, hot helping of the latest science news. Starting with a fun family favourite, looking at how cocaine users make riskier decisions after losing a gamble. This study, investigating the gambling behaviour of a group of healthy participants and a group of participants with cocaine addictions, found that the cocaine users' heightened sensitivity to loss leads them to take greater risks after they've lost a gamble, in contrast to the control group, who will take smaller risks under the same circumstances. Yep, this study, published in Biological Psychiatry, Cognitive Neuroscience and Neuroimaging, comes from a team of researchers from all over. We've got the senior author, Martin Paulus, from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, first author, Joshua Goen, from the University of California, San Diego. And their research suggests the altered neural processing of risk and reward drives people with cocaine use disorder to take further risks to regain a lost reward. The idea that, you know, if you just get that one lucky spin that one good roll of the dice next time you can win it all back you can reclaim all of your losses and double down which leads itself to the article title of doubling down increased risk-taking behavior following loss by individuals with cocaine use disorder is associated with striatal and anterior cingulate dysfunction so the researchers did check in on everyone's brain activity while they were performing this study which um involved a risky gains task, uh, earning money by essentially a a game of chance. The control group showed a proportional increase in activity of the ventral striatum, which is important for processing reward, as the potential winnings increased, whereas the cocaine users didn't have the activation in that region of their brain, which suggests that it's not the potential reward which is motivating these people. It's more the it's more the sensitivity to loss that's uh, motivating them to make the choices they do. Yeah, it's not the idea that they can win big, but that they won't have lost big either. The test was essentially a gambling mini game where you could bet either a low value safe option. Uh, medium risk, medium reward option, or towards a high risk but high reward option, and that kind of not wanting to lose more than then wanting to win big is described by Cameron Carter, editor of the journal Biological Psychiatry, as an interesting parallel to real life behaviour, brain activity, and choice. And the authors do note that because the data for the study was collected at a single point in time after the development of cocaine use disorder, it's not yet known if the differences between healthy and drug-addicted participants uh, is something that directly results from cocaine use disorder or something that might have preceded it. Something that might have led to them developing their habits in the first place. So future studies, which we are sure to see coming, will hopefully investigate this a little bit further. And then changing tack from brains to bodies, our next study is a bit of a revealing look at how the healthcare systems in America, this is an American-based study, are not quite meeting the demands of all of the patients that they might be treating with endocrinologists, people who are trained in the treatment of hormones and bodily balances therein. They want more training in the care for transgender patients. And obviously this is, um, it's not just the patients who 
are being underserved by the system. This is the physicians themselves saying that they're not being served in their training in order to be able to work with these patients effectively. They spoke to 411 endocrinologists working in the US and nearly 80% of them had treated at least one trans person in the course of their career. While they were comfortable taking history and prescribing hormones in those situations, because, you know, that's, that's the job, they felt less confident when it came to discussing things that were a little bit more outside the bounds of their specialisation. So if the patient wanted to discuss potential implications of surgery or other non-hormonal treatment options for them, the endocrinologists were finding that a much less comfortable thing to discuss. And they'd like more support in their ongoing professional development to be able to deliver that kind of care. You emphasise that it's not something that they had any personal aversion to, but that they simply didn't have the communication networks with other endocrinologists who had the kind of experience that would be useful. They didn't have any training through medical school or residency. And that's the kind of thing they would like to see going forward as a change to healthcare systems through online modules, medical meetings, just some way of improving patient care for patients to whom they are perhaps seeing in a more ready fashion than, say, chiropodists. I feel like this is a positive step that physicians are saying we're aware this is a thing we're having to work with and we'd like more support in making sure we're offering good care to these patients. And I hope the suggestions that this study's collected are acted upon and probably expanded to other healthcare providers. I've heard some horror stories. So hopefully there'll be education, development, communication, and above all, involvement with the trans community going forwards to see what patients need and how it can be best provided. And in a little story, which is not as such news, but is another piece of evidence to support something we were already pretty sure about, Lower socioeconomic position linked to adult obesity across generations. It's been established for some time, but in a study that links uh, socioeconomic position, or SEP, not only across generations, but across uh, someone's entire life, they're finding that the older someone from a lower socioeconomic background gets, the greater the influence of their childhood socioeconomic performance has on their BMI, the measure of body mass index, which is not a perfect measure of one's health. It's very important to to point out that BMI is mostly bullshit, um, but it is still used as a... if, If you're told by your doctor that you are overweight, obese, morbidly obese, they are almost always basing that on BMI data. So it's still significant in the context of... The medical care you might be receiving, even if it's not actually a useful indicator of your health in any way. Um, But yes, it's well established that food insecurity has got a very strong correlation with higher body weights. And do you know who often is insecure about where their next meal is coming from? It's poor people. If you want to find out any more about that research, it's from the CLOSER research programme, standing for Cohorts and Longitudinal Studies Enhancement Resources. And now moving on from something that we've known about, you know, being poor is not great for you. Here we have a slightly more political take on how I probably have come to that conclusion and 
how different people might respond to hearing this study. The sort of top line on this is sacred thinking isn't just a thing that political conservatives do, it's also something people who are politically liberal do. Four studies um, examining how liberals and conservatives justify their political attitudes on two quite big issues in the US, uh, same-sex marriage and the Keystone XL oil pipeline. So on both sides of the political spectrum, people are basing their opinions on certain issues on fairness and on uh, sanctity in a sense. So uh, liberal support for same-sex marriage is a fairness thing and conservative support for oil pipelines is based on fairness as well in a sense of you know helping the money move creating jobs that sort of thing on the opposite side conservative opposition to same-sex marriage is uh quoting here rooted in concerns about violations of the sacred order and liberal opposition to the development of oil pipelines is rooted more in concerns about fear of desecrating uh the environment so my attitude to these findings is sort of immediate drawing back from it and being what no that's not what it's about and it's whether that's my interpretation because I don't want to be sort of I don't want on any level to be associated with people whose politics I so so disagree with or not is is well it's it's something that it might be the case but we don't know I'm not that I'm not that sophisticated that I can kind of interrogate my feelings in that way but I do feel like the sanctity argument. To me, it feels like the opposition to same-sex marriage on the grounds of sanctity is the sanctity of my personal interpretation of this holy book, whereas the concerns about desecrating the environment are about how about we don't poison people's water supplies? And, I mean, in the case of the Dakota Access Pipeline, how about we don't invade land which doesn't actually technically belong to us because of very long-standing treaties and I feel like those are distinct things. Trying to frame them as equivalents is super weird. Corresponding author for the study, Matt Motel, from the University of Illinois, Chicago, says that the culture war is mired in a stalemate partly because each side considers some matters to be sacrosanct and other matters as suitable for revision in the name of fairness. Perhaps reframing these issues in non-sacralized terms could open opportunities for open-minded discussion. And I think you're right that the sanctity of a life, as determined by a book, is not equivalent to the sanctity of me being one of the chumps who lives on this planet, how about we stop blowing holes in it? Yeah, this is one I'd actually quite like to see some more um, some more discussion about. I mean, not not internet comment section discussion because that's going to get ugly very quickly. But you know, human face to face discussion. People trying to be sensible about it and actually tease out whether this is a reasonable conclusion. I think what you said about interrogating yourself to have a moment of reflection to say, is there any way in which I can you know find some equivalence to look at it from someone else's point of view to have some empathy about it to say well you know i don't live in an area affected by the keystone pipeline maybe my business driven concerns are not so 
compelling as the idea that I don't want my backyard to be on fire. But also, you know, I oppose gay marriage, but maybe I should go out and meet people who support gay marriage or are gay and want to be married and yeah, see... I think meeting people who are directly affected by the issue is much more important for a more reasonable stance on it if you're if you disagree with them i think you can you know you can say i'm gonna go meet some people who support gay marriage and it'll be the straight people who aren't really affected by it but if you go and meet some people who are like well i'd really like to have been able to marry my long-term partner so that i could be with him in hospital before he died of aids you're maybe getting a more complete picture of why people feel the way they do about it as opposed to just love is love and we should all be able to marry who we want which true but also the people you're disagreeing with are people so it's expanding the frame you're viewing things through and it might let in things that you have to then consider about how you view other subjects to see if there is any crossover there between your moralistic views on other things that you describe as more conservative or more liberal values, how strongly you hold those to be a formative identity in yourself as well. Um, so we'll have to see where this one goes, I guess. But if I get the feeling it's not going to... People are going to find it very hard to discuss this in a way that isn't furious, I think. We all need to open our minds, you know? And in further news of things I can't really relate to. And things I sure don't understand. College students who tan indoors, i.e. using tanning beds, are not deterred from doing it by knowing the risk of skin cancer. And this is, again, something that I need to adjust my frame on because I'm someone who works in the field of cancer research and cancer communication. That is my day-to-day. -day. So, of course... I spend lots of time talking to scientists and to patients, to people who treat cancer, to people who have cancer, people who have lost ones to cancer. And a lot of the general feeling in the cancer field is the best way of treating cancer is to not get it. To prevent is better than cure. And that involves, you know, encouraging people to do more exercise, which lowers the chance of getting cancer. To lose weight lowers the chance of getting cancer. Not smoking has been very effective. Reducing the amount that you consume alcohol, red meats. You know, there are lots of things that we know cause cancer. Top of that list is the use of indoor tanning beds. That is so strongly associated with the development of skin cancers that it's frankly a wonder they haven't been outlawed. But from this survey of 629 female undergraduate and graduate students at Indiana University campuses, there are people who put forward a much more personal view, a much more driven, emotional argument for, I really want to. Yes, and I do want to point out about the cancer prevention stuff. At some point, you've got to cut loose and have fun, and also sometimes cancer just happens. This is something I um, I know some people get find quite an emotive issue. Headlines in the news like, 60% of cancers are preventable. And sure, if you can prevent those, great, but that doesn't mean you don't treat the other 40% of people. Yes, I have had friends who've lost people very close to them to cancers which are entirely genetic and therefore entirely unavoidable. Uh, 
find those things very, very upsetting because there is the implication that most people who get cancer have probably done something to deserve it, which is not the case. Mm. Um, and yeah, you've got to die of something and you've got to have some fun. But I mean, for a start, I don't understand the appeal of a tanning bed anyway. It means sitting still for longer than I'm happy to do. Um, I personally don't actually like having a tan. I don't think it suits me. Not quite your goth aesthetic. Yeah, and I, I would rather not have skin cancer that I know I had a role in causing. On the other hand, 99.4% of the people surveyed out of that population of over 600 agree that tanning causes skin problems such as premature ageing and skin cancer. 69.1% say they still like to tan, even though they know tanning might be bad for their skin. Which is probably because 83.6% feel that a tan makes them more attractive, and 83% feel that during tanning, while they're lying on their tanning bed, they feel more relaxed and pleasant. This is one of those things. Is it worth potentially making yourself very unwell in the future, if you're having a nice time now? And... I think probably one of the limitations of our feeble human minds is maybe not grasping that this is really a thing that can happen to you. But yeah, these are these are educated people who are doing this cost-benefit analysis and going ahead. And there is the note that, you know, that relaxing, pleasant behaviour could be slightly addictive, that the stimulation of vitamin D production as a result of tanning is also a major feel-good factor, does have its own health benefits. And that the individuals who are more likely to use indoor tanning are people who are, to some extent, coming from a culture of using them, so their, their family and friends use them. They think it's an attractive trait. And probably relevant to my attitude to it, one of these things um, that makes you more likely to use indoor tanning, apparently, is tanning easily. Because I burn to a crisp. Well, I suppose it's worth a momentary consideration of other cultures' attitudes towards skin colour, where many countries uh, across Asia favour skin bleaching creams, the idea of getting whiter and fairer, of going out under the shade of a parasol in even the slightest hint of sunshine, because whiter is the desired trait there, and that comes with its own risk fits. Yes, and a shout-out on that one to Naina, one of my colleagues on my degree course at university, whose final year project was about exactly that, the, the relevance of that colourism to her as a young Indian woman in Britain. Well, speaking of environmental influence and cultural attitudes towards behaviour that we know is bad for you, turns out that kids exposed to alcohol beverage marketing are more likely to want to drink alcoholic beverages. Yep, if you were exposed to more alcohol marketing when you're in your early teens or possibly even younger, uh, you are more likely to drink regularly, you are more likely to binge drink, you're more likely to start drinking before it's technically legal for you to do so, which isn't Really surprising, we know advertising works. It has a very powerful role in creating our cultures as human beings. It's, you know, advertising is the reason Father Christmas wears red. 
It's the reason a lot of Japan has KFC for Christmas dinner. It's also apparently a reason a lot of us get drunk. And this was a systematic review of 12 studies published since 2008, which altogether find that exposure to alcohol marketing in youth is linked with underage drinking and binge drinking in particular, that is consuming more than four or five alcoholic drinks per two hours. I mean, this is the medical definition of binge drinking. From discussions I've had with people who are older than me, apparently 20 years ago that was known as Friday night, but obviously the medical community is basing this definition off effects of alcohol in the long term on your body, as opposed to, am I having a good time yet? Or, oh look, Dave's got another round of beers in. We do. And they note, alcohol is the leading cause of death and disability for men aged 15 to 24 in nearly every region of the world and females of the same age in the wealthy countries and the Americas. In the United States, excessive alcohol use is responsible for an average of 4,350 deaths every year among people under the legal drinking age of 21. They don't mention this, but I feel like that's probably indirectly. It's not just you've overdosed on alcohol and thrown up your entire body, but it's getting drunk and falling off things. Getting drunk and driving things. So, skin cancer, bad for you. Alcohol and your behaviour under the influence thereof, also bad for you, and people still keep doing it. Because sometimes you've got to have fun, and you've got to die of something. Stay safe out there, folks. And continuing in things which are heavily, and one might even say almost entirely, influenced by our culture and our exposure to images in the media, it's difficult to recognise that white people are white. Especially if you are yourself white. And this isn't a study of people who have recently lost or recently regained eyesight. This is a survey, uh, a study published in the Journal of Experimental Psychology, which um, yeah, got lots of people to look at two groups of actors. They've named them as Colin Firth, Kate Winslet, Jim Carrey, Halle Berry, Morgan Freeman, and Eddie Murphy. And players in a game made a series of guesses as to what these actors had in common and generated the names of more actors to see if they were right, to say, like... Who know. else might fit in this category? So you could say, um, let's see, Halle Berry, Morgan Freeman... Eddie Murphy. What they, movies have they done together? Have they all worked with Hugh Jackman? Have they all done a Pixar voice? Have they all been superheroes? And in fact, when the participants were presented with the group of white actors, the common thread was that they were white, and when they were presented with the black actors, the common thread was that they were black. But people were very, very bad at recognising that the common factor with the white actors is that they're white. Yeah, a difference of 90% for the black actors to 25% for the white actors. The participants were given 20 minutes for the game, and the average for the 90% who guessed that what Halle Berry, Eddie Murphy and Morgan Freeman have in common is their race was in seven minutes. That's less than half of the time they had available for the game. Whereas when you put one white actor and three black actors side by side and asked what made the white actor unusual among the group, less than 5% of participants mentioned the fact that the actor was white. And we don't know exactly why that is. We can be pretty sure the the reason for the, the results of this study is, on some level, racism. Whether it's because 
we're more likely to consider other factors about a white person before their race comes up or because as is suggested in the press release the average hollywood actor is white they're just seen as the norm among film stars says professor pete hegarty from the university of surrey and this study clearly shows one consequence of this the failure to notice that white actors are white And also, this is an interesting note that I'd like to see followed up with more studies, the guessing game is based on a process that psychologists have used to model how scientists formulate and test scientific theories for over 50 years. To the extent that this model is accurate, then these results suggest why scientists might be much quicker to label something common to black people as race-related than something common to white people. And oh boy, does that not just open up a whole can of worms. Yeah, I mean... If it's a true fact that the culture we live in is racist, then that is going to extend into everything, including our science. And it is important for scientists to make efforts to avoid that. It's not always going to be possible, but you've got to be aware of it so that you can try. Something else that I think everyone should be aware of is spiders. Whether because you're frightened of them and you want to avoid them, because some of them are super duper poisonous. Luckily, not any of the ones that live around where we are. The fact that some of them are super essential to food webs and pest control and are a vital part of many ecological spheres. Or just the fact that, you know, generally, as animals, they're, they're quite cool. There's quite a lot of things they're really good at. Some things that... Only one or two of them will do, but really differently to the others, and look at it go. But more importantly than that, in the age of genetics, fiddling with spiders, getting into their code, and untangling all of their genes is proving just quite unusual. You can refer to our earlier study in a previous podcast looking at black widow toxin as a potential cure for Zika virus. Well, yes, indirectly via a uh, bacteriophage or indeed some work that was done a few years ago and may or may not be ongoing, I haven't looked it up. The genes for creating spider silk protein were inserted into a herd of goats who you could then milk them and get silk from their udders. They literally called them spider goats. It was kind of bizarre. Well, also I can see how it might work. But this one is, again... A little bit of genetic modification involved, in this case, to create synthetic spider silk, which can be made antibiotic. Yes, and this is described as just a chance meeting. It's not a chance meeting. It comes out of a meeting that they were having in the university that the right people were attending. It's one of those things that it had to be those two people encountering one another in the context of a discussion about spiders. Well, seeing as one of them wants to work with spiders and the other one wants to make antibiotics, it's kind of fated to happen if you both work within the same department, which is from the University of Nottingham. Well done then. This research is published in the online journal Advanced Materials and uh, concerns the work of doctors Neil Thomas, Professor of Medical and Biological Chemistry, and Dr Sarah Goodacre, who heads up the Spider Lab in the School of Life Sciences. Dr Goodacre was discussing with the audience some spider silk, understanding how it works, possibly making it artificially, and Professor Thomas, who came over at the end of the meeting and said, I think my group could make that, and now they are. 
I want to draw attention to the way that Dr. Goodacre describes her presentation. She says, I got up at that meeting and showed the audience a picture of some spider silk and said, I want to understand how the silks work and then make some. Which isn't your typical TED talk, but I feel is to the point, just pointing at a picture of a spider and saying, gimme. So the artificial silk that the team are making is produced using uh, genetically modified E. coli bacteria. They are particularly good for genetic modification. They're the ones who are sitting in huge vats, creating all that insulin to treat diabetes. We've mapped their genome. We know what it looks like. We know what pretty much all of it does. They are our complete workhorse when it comes to genetic modification. Anything that you want to know genetically, you do an E. coli. And anything that you want to create en masse without having to farm other animals, you keep a vat of genetically modified E. coli bacteria on hand, insert the necessary gene into their cells, and let them go. It's just what I was doing for my final year project in university, actually. So, um, yes, they have been producing spider silk, but not just your ordinary spider silk. No, this is uh, silk fibres that they have decorated using, uh, for example, levofloxacin, an antibiotic, which, when administered to plates of bacteria, has retained its antibacterial activity for at least five days, according to their reports. And the plan is to turn this stuff into really good dressings for wounds, and possibly use it to treat stomach ulcers. Because rather than having to, for example, spray on some antiseptic and then pile wadding on top, or have to dress a bandage, and then give someone a course of antibiotics, if you can administer local antibiotics to a wound, which then also come with the clotting factors of spider silk, something that's been used medicinally for hundreds, if not thousands of years. They've got descriptions here of it going back through Shakespearean times, referred to in A Midsummer Night Dream, to Roman soldiers using it to pad wounds. Then what you've got there is a really effective means of dressing a wound. And the way that this silk has been chemically built means that you can attach any number of useful molecules to it because it's got active sites which you can just pop in any handy antibiotic, anti-clotting... Fluorescent dyes... Pro-clotting... Whatever you want to do with it. Anything you need. And there is one final quote here, not directly related to the story, but uh, Dr Goodacre says... It's the start of a fascinating adventure that saw a postdoc undertake a very preliminary study to construct the synthetic silks. A former Spider Lab PhD student who had previously worked with our tarantulas. And oh boy, if I'm not a Spider Lab PhD student who is working with tarantulas by the end of this year, then I will consider 2017 just a complete wash. You don't need a PhD, you've got a proper job. We apologise to any PhD students listening to this, any doctors <laughs> listening to this. No, I mean, I, I respect your education and your hard work. Please give me a job. PhD. Either or. I'll take it. <laughs> as long as I get to do the spider lab stuff with tarantulas, then <laughs> that's fine by me. With that uh, promise of things yet to come, we have come to the end of yet another episode of Eureka Nerd Podcast. But just before we go, here's a few stories to get your brains tingling. Until next time, did you know that researchers have found a link between concussions and Alzheimer's disease? Being hit in the head gives you neurodegenerative diseases. Who knew? Everyone. We reported on it last time, looking at the football, the football players. Exactly. And also, research from the University of Leicester 
where students have found out that the zombie apocalypse would wipe out humankind in just a hundred days. This coming from the same department who wanted to find out which superhero was best and made a tally chart of who would win in a fight with who, and also if it was possible that Leicester City's win in the Football League's last year was at all attributable to the Force. Well, as long as they're having a nice time. We should do a guest podcast from the University of Leicester. They've got a lot of fun stuff happening. Zombies and Yoda and Batman and oh my. It's kind of a long way to Leicester from here, but... Hey, Lester, let us know. So, all that's left for me to say is goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. I'll see you again next time.